All right, good morning, Mercy Hill. Uh, Nick here, if you're joining in, um, grateful, grateful to have you. Um, I know that we kind of uh, continue on with our, our uh, virtual gatherings. I hope that you've been finding them encouraging. Uh, again, we, we continue to try to keep updated with what's going on, and it does seem like uh, we will be uh, doing this for some time. So uh, I miss seeing your faces. Even as I uh, prayed before we got started here, I was just asking God to help me keep your, your faces, your hearts, the people that I care about in front of me, in front of my mind, if you will, so that even as we're going through this study, you're the ones that are on my heart. And uh, just know I miss you, and I can't wait till we can uh, gather back together in person. But for now, this is uh, the medium that we have uh, to work with, and I'm grateful that we have this option. So uh, if you are tuning in from outside of, of Mercy Hill, uh, grateful to have you with us as well. Again, my name is Nick, lead pastor here, and I'm going to be getting us into God's word momentarily. But one thing I will say uh, I do hope that, as Christine mentioned in the announcements, um, I do hope that you are finding your way towards uh, community, even in this time. Um, I know for me, uh, we've moved our home group, like, like the other home groups have kind of moved to an online format. We're using Zoom uh, video conferencing, their platform. And if I'm honest, at first, we, we met uh, Friday night, and I was initially a little bit uh, hesitant, like, I don't know how this is going to go. Is this going to be artificial and weird? And I'm not kidding. Almost from the moment I saw the faces of, oops, sorry, members in our group, I was so encouraged. Um, I felt uh, like God was there with us, connecting us, even through the screen, even across the distance. And it was beautiful. And so I'd encourage you to step into that awkward space as well. And uh, even though it may feel a little artificial, God can really meet you there. Um, and so if you're not a part of a home group and things and you're just thirsting for community, this is the time where, hey, just uh, look online at mercyhillchurch.org and you'll be able to find uh, a group or something that maybe you could, you could tuck into as well. We want to be here for you. Um, I guess that's all I'll say about that. Let me then get us into our, our series, kind of diving back into uh, this little series we've been running since the whole, um, uh, the whole uh, coronavirus thing has taken place. And we're calling this series, Do Not Be Afraid. And if you remember, uh, what we're essentially doing is, uh, there, there are basically uh, hundreds of different texts throughout the scriptures where God uh, tells his people in one way or another, do not be afraid, have no fear, uh, uh, take courage, that sort of a thing. And uh, given the situation that we're facing in our city, nation, world, I thought it'd be great to kind of week by week just drop into some of those various places in Scripture where God is saying that to his people and kind of working that out, reflecting on that together. In other words, asking questions like, okay, God, you say do not be afraid. Why? Why ought we not to be afraid? Or um, what should we be, what should we be feeling and doing if we're not supposed to be feeling afraid and acting out in fear? Uh, what would uh, not being afraid look like, kind of walking out into the particular details of this context right now, the coronavirus pandemic? 
as we're watching, uh, you know, our health being threatened, our finances being threatened, our jobs being threatened, uh, whatever it may be, what would it look like to actually walk out uh, this idea that, hey, I don't have to be afraid. God is with me and all of these things. So we have uh, looked at numerous, uh, or well, I guess I shouldn't say numerous yet. We've looked at a couple of different um, angles so far. Previous week's sermons, here's what we've seen. We've seen that we don't need to be afraid because God hears. That was week one. We don't need to be afraid because God hears. We looked at the story of Hagar and Ishmael and, and came to this reality that God hears us as we cry out to him in the wilderness. We're not alone in our trials. He's right here. And then we've seen also, this is now kind of week two in this series, we don't need to be afraid, but instead what we should do is remember. Instead of looking towards the future with fear and the unknown and kind of going, I, you know, it, God was there for me then, but is he going to be there for me now? I, I'm freaking out about all of these things. We don't know what's going to happen. God calls us to remember, to set our mind on what we've seen to set our mind on what he's already revealed, to let his past faithfulness reassure us of his future faithfulness. We may not know what tomorrow holds, but we know the God who goes with us into it. That was last week. Now, this week, we're going to take on the subject from yet another angle. Let me uh, read the text here for us. We'll, we'll pray and, and, and dive in. Um, but let me first even just say this. Uh, you may notice we're going to be going through Luke's gospel. Um, chapter, I think it's chapter 5, verses 1 through 11. And I know I've been preaching through Luke's gospel. So yes, I've taught uh, through this text probably a few years ago now. But um, this morning, rest assured, I'm not just going to recycle that. Uh, I, I, I felt like this was going to be a timely word for us. And I'm going to kind of bring out different emphases that I think are pertinent given our, our theme and the series that we're running and the context that we're in. So I hope you see why uh, I'm stepping into this text once more uh, with you by the time that we're done. But let's read it and pray and dive in. So Luke 5, uh, beginning in verse 1. On one occasion, while the crowd was pressing in on him to hear the word of God, he was standing by, this is Jesus, the lake of Gennesaret, and he saw two boats by the lake. But the fishermen had got out of them and were washing their nets. Getting into one of the boats, which was Simon's, he asked him to put out a little from the land, and he sat down and taught the people from the boat. And when he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, Put out into the deep and let down your nets for a catch. And Simon answered, Master, we toiled all night and took nothing, but at your word, I will let down the nets. And when they had done this, they enclosed a large number of fish, and their nets were breaking. They signaled to their partners in the other boat to come and help them. And they came and filled both the boats so that they began to sink. But when Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees, saying, Depart from me. For I am a sinful man, O Lord. For he and all who were with him were astonished at the catch of fish that they had taken. And so also were James and John, sons of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon. And Jesus said to Simon, Do not, here it is, do not be afraid. From now on, you will be catching men. When they had brought their boats to land, they left everything 
and followed him. So let's pray for a moment together. God, right now, even though we are um, in different places and even though I'm, I'm, I'm preaching this message in advance of, of people who will be watching it, I trust that you are here with us. Uh, the future, as I've heard it said, is not just something that you know. It's a place that you are. You're already preparing things. You are uh, the Alpha and the Omega. You are the end and, 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 and you know it from the beginning. And so God, I know that you can bridge the gap, uh, not just distance, but, but temporally between us and you can meet us as one body in and through our time together here. And God, we ask that you would use this message to encourage your people. That as we, uh, as we come together uh, into your word, that your spirit would accompany the preaching of your word and would, would bring the gospel to bear on our hearts and would, would help us see, perhaps with a new lens, the situations that we're facing, the things that we feel. God, I pray that you'd use me. Um, let me get out of the way here. Let me just be a vessel that you can use fully uh, for your glory and the good of your people. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, it is really a simple truth that I, I wish to bring out this morning, and I make it clear, actually, in the title of this message, if you can see it on um, your worship guide online. But it's this, do not be afraid. His mercy is more. His mercy is more. Now, uh, of course, I borrow the verbiage here from that song that we would often sing together on Sunday mornings entitled, His Mercy is More. And actually, I'm going to ask Peter, you should see it, kind of a link to that song uh, in the, the bottom part of the worship guide for this morning. I want you to hear it. I want you to get this reality in your, in your heart, in your bones. Um, we do not need to be afraid because His mercy is more. And now while I borrow the verbiage from this song, the reality is our text this morning really illustrates that idea vividly for us. And that's what we're really going to spend some time trying to uh, bring out and, and, and meditate on this morning. Now, before I outline for us where we're headed, uh, let me explain why I think this, this text, this idea may be especially relevant uh, for us right now, uh, given what we're facing. So, I know that we have now been a couple weeks into this shelter-in-place order. We've been confined to our homes. Uh, a lot of our rhythms and things have been uh, disrupted. Uh, I know that a lot of us are probably, that we've been shaken up a bit, right? We're, we're kind of in each other's space now. You've got, you know, husband, uh, wife, whatever, working from home, sharing the counter. You've got kids running around while you're trying to do Zoom conference calls with your boss or your team, right? You, now, all of a sudden, you're having to kind of homeschool your kids because schools shut down. Or some of us, perhaps, are, are uh, uh, living alone, and so we're feeling isolated. We're feeling like, man, we don't have our regular touch points for community uh, stuff, I, I think we're about two weeks in now here, and stuff has probably gotten shaken up quite a bit. Stuff has probably uh, uh, gotten messed up to such a degree that my guess is we're, 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 we're seeing some stuff come out of our hearts that we kind of wish wasn't there. We're, we're watching perhaps a little bit of sin kind of come out that we're going, whoa, where did that come from? 
I heard it said that, um, you know, in one sense, we all have been exposed, not necessarily to the COVID-19 virus, but by it. <laughs> that this has, has really uh, mixed up stuff and exposed things in our hearts. Uh, things have been brought out because of this. When you shake the soul a bit, uh, muck starts to surface. I think you would agree. Now, I don't think I'm alone in this, but I will just throw myself under the bus for a moment. I, I, I can tell you that probably for the first week as I was dealing with the new realities uh, and the changes and things, I was, I was throwing a tantrum uh, before the Lord, just going, God, I don't, I don't want all my plans to be changed. I don't want to do Easter online. I don't, God, I had all these ideas of what we were going to, I don't like, I don't want to have to ramp up a new vision and strategy for meeting in a way that just feels so unfulfilling to me, like preaching to a camera as I am now instead of the faces of the ones that I love. I was like, ah, throwing a tantrum, watching myself get frustrated with, with my wife and my kids and other church leaders and things. It's just like, gosh, what is that? So I'm guessing, I'm guessing that there have been, uh, even for you guys, some sharp tongues among spouses. I'm sure there, there, there have been some, some irritate, there's been some irritation with kids, some frustration, some, some getting on my nerves and short tempers. I, I, I'm sure that there are probably some of us who perhaps because we've been alone or isolated or whatever it may be, we have been finding ourselves kind of going places online or with the TV that, that we shouldn't be. And our minds been going and setting on things that, that we know aren't right. Things have been shaken up and frankly, sin is coming out. Sin is coming out, perhaps like it hasn't in a while. And so the question then becomes for us, what do we do with that? What do we do when we're watching this stuff come out of our heart? What, what are we supposed to do when we realize we're worse sinners uh, than we thought uh, we were two weeks ago? Do we say things like, man, what a ridiculous Christian I am. What a hypocrite. What, 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 a, what, a, what a loser, frustrated with my spouse, frustrated with my kids, losing my temper, arguing with coworkers, whatever it may be. Now I'm going to go like the, you know, the pastor said or the church. Now I'm going to go pass out neighborhood care cards and, and offer you know, to serve others and bring the good news of the gospel to others. Now I'm going to gather my kids around the table and lead them in family devotions or worship or whatever? Are you kidding me? I feel like a joke. I've lost my witness. I, I, I've, I've blown it. It's over. When you see your sin, isn't the temptation to do exactly what Peter does here in our text? Namely, depart from me. I'm a sinner. Like I don't belong in the company of Christ. You just go on without me, Jesus. You know I'm just going to mess up whatever you put in my hands. So you just roll on with your mission and leave me here. Depart from me. I am a sinner. And I wonder, have you been feeling like that? Have you been watching this stuff come out of your heart and go, man, forget it. Everyone else can be on mission. That's fine. Everyone else can go and talk about, you know, God and how good he is and all this. And I'm just going to sit here 
in my sin and in my shame. Listen, if that's where you're at, this message is for you. And it's for me. It's for people like us that are starving to hear the gospel again. The good news of Jesus Christ again. So this morning, we're going to divide this text up under four headings. Um, First, we're going to see a divine beholding in verses 1 through 7. Second, a frightening exposure, verses 8 through the first part of verse 10. And then third, an unexpected welcome, and that's the middle of verse 10. And then uh, fourthly and finally, an abounding inclusion. That's the last part of verse 10 down through verse 11 and the end of our text. Now, obviously, for the purpose of this series, the real focus of this text for us is going to be there in verse 10 when Jesus says to Peter, do not be afraid. But we're going to do some work on either side to kind of get to that pinnacle point, as it were. And uh, I hope you will be encouraged. But at this point, uh, you can pause your video and consider the questions under pause point number one. We'll see you soon. All right, welcome back. So now we begin with that first heading, a divine beholding, verses 1 through 7. Now, in those verses, Peter comes to see something of the glory and majesty of Christ, it would seem, right? So there's this, this is what I'm meaning when I say this divine beholding. He beholds the divine uh, in Jesus. He, he's, he encounters God, as it were, in these verses and in this miracle that uh, Jesus works for them uh, in this story here. So just to kind of recount it, Peter and his, and his boys, they've been out on the lake of Gennesaret, which is the Sea of Galilee, and they've been out all night uh, trying to go for it, dropping their drag nets and, and doing their fishing thing, but they've caught nothing. They've come back to the shore, no doubt, a little bit frustrated, irritated. It's been a bum night. But then here comes this rabbi from Nazareth. He's, uh, it would seem from the Gospels, a carpenter. By no uh, stretch is he a fisherman, and yet he has some counsel for Peter. And he says, hey, hey, I know you were out all night, but let's just try this one more time. Set your nets out in the deep, and uh, let's see what you can pull in. And we keep going, and you see that perhaps Peter has a bit of reluctance. He, he even perhaps has a little bit of irritation with uh, this rabbi who's kind of telling him uh, what to do. And you can kind of sense that in Peter's response there in verse 5 where he says, Master, we toiled all night and took nothing. But at your word, I will let down the nets. So he eventually acquiesces and he says, all right, listen, I'm the fisherman here. We were out all night. We took nothing. But if you say so, We'll humor you. We'll go out. We'll try it again. And so he does, and he pulls in a catch unlike anything he's ever seen. Nets are breaking. Boats are sinking from all the fish. Now, that's the miracle. That's what Peter sees externally. But what he realizes in the midst of this whole thing going down is that he's just had an encounter with God. He's just beheld the divine, as it were. God is here. It's almost as if the curtains were drawn back for a moment. And like what uh, Paul says in, I believe it's uh, 2 Corinthians, it's almost as if curtains were drawn back and in the face of Jesus Christ, Peter saw the glory of God. 
Now, we can kind of even get a sense that this is happening in Peter's heart, even by the, the, the way that he uses these titles to address Jesus, uh, because they shift. I don't know if you noticed this from verse five to verse eight. The, the, the titles, the appellations that Peter uses to address Jesus shift. In verse five, he says, hey, master, master, we were out all night. But we'll, we'll do it again if you say so. But in verse 8, suddenly this one whom he just called master, he now refers to as what? Lord. And that word Lord in the Greek, kurios, is in the Old Testament, the Greek Old Testament. It's the word that's always used to refer to Yahweh himself, God. So even here, it's as if Peter is kind of saying, I thought you were just a rabbi. Now I'm thinking you might be God. And we understand that his apprehension of this uh, is, is going to develop and grow over time. And, but we still kind of see that, wow, there's this hint towards uh, a comprehension of something is going on with this man from Nazareth. That, that, that I have just beheld in him something of God. Now, to kind of fill this out even further, maybe why Peter would be feeling this way. I've, I've mentioned before, um, but for ancient cultures, the, the sea was not the way that we think of it today. Uh, the, the waters and the sea, like the Sea of Galilee here, uh, it was not, not kind of the way we think of it. We think of the sea as a place to vacation beside. We think of uh, the, the sea as this picture of serenity. Uh, that's why we put it up on our screensavers, on our computers, or we have, you know, pictures and posters up on our walls. Or when we have, you know, a long weekend, we head up to Tahoe so we can kick it in the sand uh, and look out at the sea. It's a beautiful thing. The waters are a beautiful thing for us. It calms us, but it was not that way for ancient cultures, for ancient people. It wasn't that way for the people of Israel. The sea in ancient cultures was understood quite oppositely. It was threatening. It was ominous. It was a chaotic reality. It was unruly and unable to be tamed. That's the sort of thing that the sea would kind of conjure up for people. And it's presented this way really throughout the whole biblical record from Genesis all the way to Revelation. Let me just give you a few examples. This is why in Genesis... I wonder if you've noticed this. Creation is presented as God bringing order from these chaotic, uh, cosmic, primeval uh, um, seas. So look at this in uh, Genesis 1, verse 2. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the what? Face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the what? Face of the water. So creation already from day one is kind of seen as this sort of bringing order out from these, these kind of chaotic deep waters, the spirit hovering over this, this cosmic sea, as it were. And then all the way uh, in Revelation, the same idea shows up in some ways where you have this sea now is the place where the beastly opponents of God, uh, they come out from the sea. So Revelation 13.1, I saw a beast rising out of the sea. And Daniel and Daniel 7.3 talks about the same sort of thing. There were beasts. And where did they come from? From out from the chaotic waters, the sea. There's something about this sea that God needs to kind of overcome. He needs to take 
tame. It's, it's unruly. It's chaotic. There are enemies that come out from it. And he's got he's to uh, uh, put it into submission. This actually is at least part of the significance uh, to what we looked at last week with the Exodus. I'll just bring it out here because we dealt with the Exodus last time. But remember, um, that's where Yahweh brings his people out from slavery in Egypt and into freedom as his children. But how does he bring them out? How does he move them from slavery to freedom? He does it by what? Parting the Red Sea. He, he cuts through the sea, as it were, and brings his people out, just like kind of the first creation involved this parting and the land coming. So now in the new creation and, and, and this idea of redemption, uh, that God is doing something new with these people, he, he parts the waters and brings them out. He subdues the chaotic waters and brings his people out through it. So the sea, as far as the Bible is concerned, is a frightening reality. One that only God himself can tame and control. Therefore, when we flip in our Bibles to the gospel records and we watch Jesus as he, as he, as he with the word, calms the sea. And as he, with, without, uh, without any fear, without any, any stumbling, without any sinking, walks on the sea. And when he, in our text here this morning, orders and governs the creatures of the sea with absolute authority so that where there were no fish just hours ago, now it's teeming with fish. When he does these things, you want to know what's happening? He's signaling to his divinity. He's signaling to the reality that he is God, that what no man could ever control or tame he can. He's giving evidence of the fact that he is the author, or as the author of Hebrews would say, the radiance of the glory of God. When you look at the Son, you see the Father. You remember when he says that to Thomas in John 14? He says, how long have you been with me? How long have you been with me? Don't you know that when you've seen me, you've seen the Father? Now, with that, let's move to this uh, second heading, a frightening exposure in uh, verses 8 through the first part of verse 10. Because as we've said, Peter catches something of this. He catches something of, wow, uh, there are, Jesus is kind of signaling towards his, his deity here. He's showing us something of his glory here. But here's the thing. Initially, at least, Peter is not excited about it. Like you and I would think, now that we know who Jesus is, what he's come to do, we would think, man, this is awesome. What an incredible miracle to get to witness. Well, Peter, who sees this, who, who beholds the divine here, as it were, is not excited. He's terrified. He's terrified. So you look at verse 8 and we read this. But when Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. Now I wonder if you've ever felt like that. I wonder if you've ever felt like that. I am too filthy. I am too polluted. I am too sinful to stand in God's 
presence so that if you kind of feel like God is moving near or God is God is present in the room with you, your reaction would be get away, get away. I know someone, a being like you would have nothing to do with me. Here's the thing that's so interesting about Peter's response. I kind of brought out in the first point the reality that, okay, it's really Peter seeing God, right? This is, this is Peter witnessing God. He is seeing God on the move. But here's the thing that's brought out in Peter's response uh, that's kind of reversed to that. So, yes, 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 it's great that I just saw God, but what Peter seems to be focusing on more than anything is the fact that now this God sees him, and it's terrifying. The idea that the one who, who, who could work such miracles, who could be so holy or whatever it is, who could be so glorious, sees him is too much for him to bear. There's this growing awareness in Peter, it would seem then, uh, both of, of, of God's holiness. He's getting a sense that God is fully separate and other in a way that perhaps he didn't understand before. And he's also growing in a sense of his own sinfulness. He's seeing both the holiness of God and his own sinfulness, and it is too much. You see, this revelation that Jesus gives, it kind of cuts in both directions. It not only shows Peter something of God, but it starts to kind of shine in on him and show him something about himself. When God shows up, certainly we see amazing things about him, but what we also come to see usually is, 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 is not so amazing stuff about ourselves. That's why I'm calling this this frightening exposure. The light that emanates from God in his glory exposes me in my shame. And this really is how it how it is with divine beholdings or, or divine encounters all throughout the scriptures. We see men and women who would have otherwise thought they were in a good position. Uh, the moment God shows up, they feel like they don't have a leg to stand on. But let me show you a few of these examples. We've got Adam and Eve from the very beginning where, uh, you know, they give into temptation. And then they hear God. He's kind of on the move there in the garden. And uh, what do they do? Run out to see him? No, they run and they hide. God coming is no longer a good thing. Why? Because I am a sinner. It's going to expose me. He's going to see me. I don't want to see him because he's going to see me. So Abraham, when he's attempting to approach God in an effort to intercede for Sodom in Genesis 18, 27, says this, Behold, I have undertaken to speak to the Lord, I who am but dust and ashes. I'm like the dust on the ground before this holy, glorious God or Israel, when they catch a vision of God up on top of Mount Sinai, they say this to Moses in Exodus 20, 19. Listen, Moses, you speak to us and we will listen, but do not let God speak to us lest we die in the lightnings and the thunder and what they saw up on Mount Sinai. They understood, listen, we do not belong up there. <laughs> we don't want to go up there. If we hear his voice, if we stand in his presence, we being sinners will just fall over dead. Or you've got Job when he encounters God at the end of 
the book of Job in uh, chapter 42, verses 5 and 6. He says this, I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. Therefore, I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. And then, of course, you have that classic example of the prophet Isaiah, who's given this, this vision of God on the throne there in heaven. And he says this, Isaiah 6, 5, woe is me. He doesn't say, awesome, I'm stoked you're in control. No, his first response is, woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. And we could just add Peter to this list of people who have encountered God. And the result was, I see my sin and I'm terrified. I want to hide, get away, depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. Now this really is the sort of thing that John Calvin, the old theologian, the old reformer, uh, John Calvin wrote famously about in the opening, uh, really the opening words of his institutes. Um, this is what he says. It's a little lengthy. I'm going to probably put it on the worship guide for you so you'll see it there. But here's um, what he says. It is certain that man never achieves a clear knowledge of himself unless he has first looked upon God's face and then descends from contemplating him to scrutinize himself. For we always seem to ourselves righteous and upright and wise and holy. This pride is innate in all of us, unless by clear proofs we stand convinced of our own unrighteousness, foulness, folly, and impurity. Moreover, we are not thus convinced if we look merely to ourselves and not also to the Lord, who is the sole standard by which this judgment must be measured. For because all of us are inclined by nature to hypocrisy, a kind of empty image of righteousness in place of righteousness itself abundantly satisfies us. And because nothing appears within or around us that has not been contaminated by great immorality, what is a little less vile pleases us as a thing most pure, so long as we confine our minds within the limits of human corruption. Just so, an eye to which nothing is shown but black objects judges something dirty white or even rather darkly mottled to be whiteness itself. As long as we do not look beyond the earth, beyond uh, or being quite content with our own righteousness, wisdom, and virtue, we flatter ourselves most sweetly and fancy ourselves all but demigods. Suppose we but once again... Uh, or, I'm sorry, suppose we but once begin to raise our thoughts to God and to ponder his nature and how completely perfect are his righteousness, wisdom, and power, the straight edge to which we must be shaped. Then what masquerading earlier as righteousness was pleasing in us will soon grow filthy in its consummate wickedness. What wonderfully impressed us under the name of wisdom will stink in its very foolishness. What wore the face of power will prove itself the most miserable weakness. That is, what in us seems perfection itself corresponds ill to the purity of God. Now that's old school language, and they even tried to kind of update it. But what he's essentially saying is this. I think I'm looking good until I look upon God. 
I think I'm white, I'm pure when I look at other brothers who are, who are, 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 are darker stained in their sin. I feel all right so long as I keep myself restrained to comparing with, uh, myself with other fallen human beings. But the moment God enters the picture, it's over for me. I'm on the floor with Peter. And there's this strange thing in our culture where we all desperately want to be seen, right? We all desperately want to be seen. And yet, at the same time, we don't. <laughs> and I think all I have to do to give you evidence of this, to illustrate this, is just is just ask you to consider how we use our, our social media feeds and things. This is what you have. You have people putting their best foot forward. Right Here's, I want to be seen. I want to be seen desperately. So I'm checking back how many likes, how many views. What did people say? I want people to see me. But at the same time, I don't. I'm actually hiding in plain sight, right? I, I'm putting forward an image that I want people to see me as, as I hide who I really am. So before I post that picture to Instagram or Facebook, I, 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 do, I do up my makeup or I tidy up the house or whatever because I want to project an image. I am hiding in plain sight. I am begging to be seen at the very moments. I am, I am I'm actually not wanting to be seen. It's ironic. And Jesus pierces through that facade. That's why the author of Hebrews says, listen, his word is like a two-edged sword and it just cuts through this junk. It gets into the heart and it exposes us. That's what happens when we encounter God. We see him, sure, but then we have this growing awareness. Whoa, he sees me. There's this dual revelation that takes place and we, we come to see stuff in us. We go, whoa, that's not clean. That's not good. I'm filthy. And we end up on our faces with Peter in the dust. With that, you can hit pause. And uh, consider the questions um, under pause point number two in your worship guide. All right, welcome back. Now we are uh, moving along here to the third uh, heading, an unexpected welcome. And it's with this that we've really climbed to what, are, to what I called the pinnacle point of this text back at the beginning. It's here really where we come to discover the heart of the gospel and we get to see how Jesus responds to Peter. In his open shame, there on the, on the floor at his feet, how is Jesus going to respond? What we see here gives hope for weary sinners like you and me. Now look at verse 10. Jesus looking down as Peter lay sprawled out at his feet with compassion and affection in his voice says what? Do not be afraid. And he would say it to those of us who are down with Peter. I want you to hear him say it to you even now. Do not be afraid. Here I say is the unexpected welcome of the gospel. The holiness of God exposes us. 
It, 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 it shows us uh, for who we truly are. And we think at once, surely, okay, if this is what is being seen of me, surely I have no business here in the presence of God. Surely I do not belong here. You need to move on without me. As the people of Israel said, listen, if you get too close, I'm dead. And the thing about this is we actually would be right. If we feel that way, that this is actually uh, um, in, in one sense, right and true. In fact, if you notice, Jesus does not tell Peter what perhaps some of the, 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 the secular, uh, modern, even sometimes Christian therapists may tell us today. And it, Jesus does not say, oh, Peter, don't talk so badly about yourself. You're good just the way you are. I, 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 you're fine. What you really need to work on is, is your self-talk and the way you beat yourself up. You're, you're not so bad a sinner. No, that's not what Jesus says at all. He doesn't say that because it's true. Peter is a sinful man. He doesn't have any business being in the presence of a holy God. And neither do I. But Peter has forgotten one thing. God is not only holy, he is also gracious and merciful. Though Peter has no business being in the presence of God, yet still he belongs there, or we could even take it even further, he is welcomed there in Christ. That is the amazing reality of the gospel. Though we do not belong, we at the same time belong, and we are welcomed, and we are, 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 are um, embraced by God. And this is when you know you really get the gospel. You see, we're so prone to fall off on either side of this cliff. Either I'm too bad, I shouldn't, I shouldn't, uh, oh, I'm probably off the screen right now. Here I am. I'm too bad, I, 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 sh I shouldn't even, be, I can't even get in the kingdom. Or, hey, listen, I'm not all that bad at all, and my sin, it doesn't matter. I'm here, and this is where I should be. No, either side is wrong. What we want and what the gospel does when it truly gets in the heart of a person is this. It, it, it humbles you, it lowers you to the dirt. Say, I am a sinner. At the same time as it elevates you, lifts you, raises you to the sky. I am welcomed. Those two realities held together in the gospel of Jesus Christ because of the cross. Now, we're all busy right now social distancing. At least we should be. Um, and this is a word that we didn't have in our vocabulary just a few weeks ago, and yet now it is commonplace. The idea is I need to stay away, uh, keep my distance from people, lest the virus continue to spread, right? It's a good plan. It makes sense. But here's the thing to bring out about the gospel in one sense. Uh, the gospel is the complete opposite movement. It's the complete opposite strategy. The gospel is Jesus Christ, the only one who is perfect and holy, God himself in the flesh, righteous, unblemished, uh, healthy and whole. He comes and instead of keeping sinful humanity at a distance, he brings us near, he invites us near, though he knows we carry the contagion, though he knows we are contaminated. 
He's come, you could say it this way, to let the virus pass to himself, to take the virus on himself because he alone knows what to do with it. He alone can tame and calm it. And here's where we actually see the chaotic waters of the sea in so many ways uh, that we, that we kind of already talked about. In so many ways are just this picture of, of, of things like the, the unruly nature of fallen man and, and the wrath of God against our sin that like a, like a sea is just threatening to swallow us whole and, and our utter inability to do anything about it. That whole thing is kind of a picture of, of, of what we see happening in the gospel, which is why Jesus can come and he can calm, he can muzzle it. And so we read in places like Micah 7, verses 18 and 19, we're kind of bringing both ideas together. Who is a God like you, pardoning iniquity and passing over transgression for the remnant of his inheritance? He does not retain his anger forever because he delights in steadfast love. He will again have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. And here it is. He will cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. He's going to take our sins and throw them into the sea. This is what Jesus has come to do. And of course, we understand how he's going to do it. He's going to take our sin upon himself, right? All the stuff that Peter is worked up about here, all the stuff that you and I are worked up and worried about, all, all the stuff that we are ashamed of, that we think disqualifies us from the kingdom, that we think has us at odds with God and there's no way there's room for us in his kingdom, all that stuff Jesus takes on himself. And then he doesn't just kind of throw it into the sea. He puts it on his back and he hurls himself headlong into the sea. That's what the cross is. The wrath of God closing in around the Son of Man. And he takes our sins down to the depths and there he leaves them. So that on day three, when he rises up from the grave, our sins remain, as Micah said, there in the depths of the sea. And now over the surface of the sea, there's this calm. There's this peace. Now all of a sudden, for sinners like you and me, there is a way back home to God. There is a way to, to even though we have no business in it, being in his presence, to belong there and be welcomed there. That's what Jesus does. We know because of his work at Calvary that we have been, that we can be, that we are in Christ forgiven. Do not be afraid, Jesus says to Peter. And I would add, our sins, they are many, but his mercy is more. That uh, line and that whole song really, I think, is probably just a poetic riff on what Paul says in Romans 5.20, where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. With that, you're ready to pause and consider the questions under pause point number three. See you back in a moment. All right, now we're going to kind of move towards this last heading and draw things to a close. Uh, now we come to this idea of an abounding inclusion. 
here we realize we have not fully yet looked at Jesus's kind of full response to Peter, right? I just kind of stopped us right there, do not be afraid, and wanted to sit on that for a moment and get us uh, thinking about the gospel. But now Jesus is going to do uh, something even more here, and it's amazing. We're going to kind of see this grace abounding all the more idea that Paul talks about in Romans 5.20 come into play in our text and what he has to say to Peter. Now, to get at this, let, let me let me explain it this way. We've we've probably all had those experiences where uh, maybe you severely offended someone. You were in the wrong. You uh, you know that you hurt them, and you came. You you maybe even came groveling. You said, "I am so sorry. Please forgive me. I know that it was wrong. Let me make it up. Whatever." And the person looks at you and just says, "Listen, what's in the past is in the past. It's all good." I love you, we're cool, don't worry, it's forgiven. And you, and you initially kind of think, awesome, this is amazing, what grace, thank you. But as time goes on, and we've probably all been there, you recognize, man, even though they said all is good, something's still not good. Something still isn't right. It's like they don't fully trust me. It's like they're still keeping me at a distance. Like I, it doesn't feel like our relationship is fully restored. And you maybe bring it up and you go, no, 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 all is good. But then you kind of see pictures of them kind of going out to your old stomping ground and they never ringed you up to, to go there uh, with them. And, and you kind of go, man, something is off. And I, I get that. I kind of feel like even though I was welcomed, I, I'm not fully back. And here's why I bring this up. Sometimes I think we can assume that God is kind of like that with us. That, okay, listen, our sin is great. Our sin is, 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 is uh, horrendous. And okay, maybe God also is gracious, right? So he will welcome us back in, sure. He will open the door, that's fine. But listen, there's gonna be a limit to that. He's gonna say, okay, I will bring you back in, but you're, you're sleeping in the basement. Or you're out in the doghouse or whatever it might be. And we say, okay, listen, I deserve that. That's fine, I'm just happy to be back Thank you, God, for welcoming me. That's grace enough. But I'll tell you, that may be grace enough, but it's not grace abounding. It's not grace abounding all the more like, like Paul talks about, like we see in our text. Because you see, Jesus doesn't say that to Peter, does he? He doesn't say, yeah, 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 you can come in, just say in the back. I'm a little bit ashamed to be associated with you. No, here's what we see in verse 10. Jesus said to Simon, do not be afraid. From now on, you will be catching men. It's an awkward thing. He's not saying anything weird. The idea is he's taking language of fishing and using it for his now including Peter in his mission to make disciples, to bring people into the kingdom. So here's, here's the point. He's saying this, Peter, not only am I going to forgive you and welcome you, I'm going to include you in my mission. You are going to be an apostle. You are going to be a pillar in my church. You're not going to be in the basement. You're not going to be in the doghouse. You're not going to be on the bench. <laughs> Heck, let's make you the team captain. And that's essentially what Jesus does with Peter. Get in the game. And then he'll kind of flip around and go, listen, now I know, just to be clear, I know you're going to blow it. <laughs> I know it's going to get bad sometimes. And, and hear me, 
I still love you. I'm going to stand with you. I'm going to help you grow. I'm going to help you lead. I'm going to include you in my mission in the advance of my kingdom. You see, all this isn't about your righteousness, your abilities, your, your qualifications, your strength. It's about mine. It's amazing. That is grace on another level. That is grace abounding. He doesn't just forgive us of our sins. He includes us in his mission. And what's more, he actually goes on to use our struggles and the story that we've had and our struggles with sin and things. He uses, his, uh, uses it as an important part of our witness and ministry. So here's the thing to be clear on. Don't think that you need to be perfect before God will use you with your neighbors or with your family. Don't think that, that if there are blemishes on you, it disqualifies you from being used. In fact, in fact, the opposite is often true. Sometimes it's the people who feel the most qualified and spotless and self-righteous and all that. that kinda, it kind of undercuts their gospel ministry because they, there's always this air of superiority about it. Like, I am on another level. Let me speak down to you. Uh, though you'll never attain to me, you may get close. And people feel that, and they're turned off to Jesus because of it. And so actually, one of the prerequisites, the primary prerequisite to being a missionary in the kingdom is actually first getting grace and the gospel for yourself and letting it sink in, letting Jesus meet you. Don't be afraid of your sin and, and the stuff that's just nasty in you. Bring that to God. Bring that to Christ. Let him love you in that place. Let him touch you with his grace right there. And that will start to transform things. That will start to move things. It's people who have been captivated by grace that can go out and captivate others or catch others for grace. That's how it works. A lot of times through the scriptures we see it, it, it's the story of our sinfulness and God's grace in the middle of it that actually is used uh, so significantly by God to bring other people in. Go, man, maybe I can be in this kingdom too if it let a guy like Nick Weber in. Maybe I could be used too. I love how one pastor's put it. Evangelism is just one beggar telling another beggar where to find bread. The idea is not, listen, I'm the chef or I, I, I'm the guy living in, on the house on the hill, but I'll come down and drop some crumbs for you out of my abundance. No, it's we are beggars together. <laughs> We are on the same level together. I'm as broken. I'm as needy. I, I, I'm, I'm as desperate. I'm as hungry. I've found bread. I've found grace. Come along. If he would welcome me and include me and feed me, I have no doubt he'll do it for you. I think here of what Paul, uh, the once murderer of Christians, wrote in 1 Timothy 1, 12 through 17. And this is where I'm going to close. Let me read this. Paul says this, I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service, though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, and insolent opponent, but I received mercy because I'd acted ignorantly in unbelief, and the grace of our Lord overflowed for me 
with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. But I received mercy for this reason that in me as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. To the king of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. You want to know what he's saying there? If God would be merciful to a sinner like me, how much more will he be merciful to you? The idea is he's taken my story of sin and my struggles. And far from having that be something that he kind of puts me on the shelf because of it, instead he actually uses that. He uses the story. I am the chief. So he uses that story to go after other sinners and show them, ravage them with his grace. And he can do the same for us. Mercy Hill, we don't need to be afraid. Though our sins, they are many. His mercy is so much more. So here's what you can do. You can pause and discuss the questions under pause point number four, journal it, whatever. If you got people in your living room, talk with them, write about it. And then uh, maybe one of you um, going through this um, could close uh, in prayer. All right, bless you. I hope to see you guys soon. I love you very much. Lord be with you.